Um, for those of you guys who don't know me and wondering why this random guy is speaking to you, my name is Stephen Rossi. I'm the high school pastor here uh, at the church. Um, if you've been around the church for a while, I've been here for about a year, so maybe you've met me, maybe you've known me. Uh, some of you might be wondering where Dallas is right at this moment. Um, he's been gone for about a year. Um, but I... I, I I'm super excited to uh, be here. I'm super excited to be teaching this morning. And honestly, it's just been a pleasure and privilege for me and my family to be a part of this, this church and be here this morning. Um, my family and I moved uh, to Lodi just over a year ago and started at the church exactly a year ago in October of last year. We started here at the church. Um, and so it's, it's a privilege. This is my wife, Emily, up here, uh, and my son, Anderson. My wife and I have been married for about eight years. Uh, actually, just this October, we celebrate our eighth year. Um, and uh, Anderson is going to be turning five here in December, which is exciting. Uh, and then we also are expecting a little one here in... 15 days. Um, so we're super excited. Yeah, isn't that exciting? Uh, so my daughter, Sophia, is, is uh, going to be born here hopefully on the 15th of November. So we'll see. But I'm um, super excited about that. But this morning, as much as I want to briefly introduce myself, my hope uh, and my prayer is that I, in some way, shape, or form, would kind of float to the back here and that God's word and the, the reason for why we hear would come to the front, right? That the spirit of the Lord would actually lead us in a way that, that you don't really remember much about me. Maybe my cute son and, and wife, that's fine, but, but not much about me, right? So um, let me pray for us this morning as we head into this time. Father, again, in that spirit, we ask that you would overwhelm us, that you would teach us that as we dive into your passage of 1 Kings chapter 8 and look at the story and history of Israel, that you would overwhelm us with your grace in the revelation of understanding history and what you have done through your people. We ask that we would gleam some sort of wisdom from Solomon here, that we would understand in some way, shape, or form how we can live in a way that's more fuller or, or deeper in our love and encouragement of you. So be with us this morning. Spirit, would you lead us? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we've been going through the series, uh, The Man Who Had It All, not necessarily the life of Solomon, but we've been looking at different aspects of Solomon. We've been talking about Solomon's wisdom as a whole, the wisdom he prayed for, but then specifically last week, Steve took us through the practicalities of biblical wisdom for all aspects of our life, right? He talked about the idea of reading through the Proverbs every day and how there is biblical wisdom for all things in life. And this week, uh, I'm going to start by reading a a verse, and and first of all, I need to apologize. This is my first time uh, teaching up here. Uh, The deadlines of that, that we got to give Glenn and Steve some encouragement when you get back. They are consistently getting things by Thursday. That is really early for me to have everything set. So there may or may not be some slides that are missing, um, but luckily you have a Bible you can open up, or you can listen to me read certain passages. So Proverbs chapter 9 is not in the slides today, but let me read that to kind of start us off. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is the foundation of understanding. Let me read that again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That kind of unpacks a little bit of the last two weeks of where we've been coming from. Gosh, like the biblical wisdom starts with a reverence for the Lord. And then moving forward into today's message, the second part of this verse says, And the knowledge of the Holy One is the foundation of understanding. The knowledge of the Holy One is the foundation for understanding. A.W. Tozer, the author of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, puts it this way, and it's a pretty famous quote, so many of you may have heard this before, but it says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before us, the church, is always God himself. 
And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And I want you to catch on to this last verse here. This not verse, this last sentence he says. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So basically what is being said here, both in Proverbs and uh, in in biblical understanding across the board, also in A.W. Tozer's words, is that there is a mental image and understanding of something. And as we have that view of who God is, whatever it is, if it's a high or low view of God, whatever that view and image and knowledge of God is, our life will slowly, whether we like it or not, align under that knowledge. Does that make sense? So we have a mental, intellectual assent or understanding of God, no matter how accurate or false it is. Whatever it is, our life is going to start to align underneath that intellectual understanding. So I was trying to think of some practical examples of that. I mean, you can like, go to some, some smaller examples of, of politics or things where if I have an ideology or an understanding of how the world should work in economics or different policies, then, then my life, I mean, you might just see your identity come under, underneath that umbrella a little bit more, right? I might claim a, a certain party affiliation or I might see different things through a certain lens if I have an intellectual understanding of a certain topic, right? But one of the better examples, especially for where we're going today, is the story of Lee Strobel. And many of you guys have probably heard of Lee Strobel. He's a famous Christian author, um, wrote the book The Case for Christ and all the other case for, you know, creator and all the different things that he's written. Um, but his story is, is pretty remar- uh, just remarkable. Um, he was an atheist, a staunch atheist, and by his own uh, accord, he, he lived a life according to that. And so he would say that he was a very rational, thought-out person. And because his mental ascent, his mental image of who God was— was a certain way, he, he, his, his natural response to that was that um, he believed that everything about his life was about him, right? So if his understanding that there is no God, if he was an atheist and there is no God, that's his mental understanding, then he's gonna, he, he makes it very clear in his t- story and in his testimony that he lived his life as if he was the center. And, and there's some pretty horrible implications for that. He had his, his degree from Yale Law. He was, had these, these accolades at the Chicago Tribune and had all these things on the outside. But as he describes his life in the midst of all these accolades, he's describing a life of a, of a failed marriage where him and his wife are fighting and at odds all the time, where he would come home from work and at the lowest points, his daughter would just pack up all of her toys and move to the next room because she didn't know which dad was coming home if he'd be angry. Because, right, if your understanding of life is that it's all about you and you have a bad day, you're going to come give that day to everybody else. And so he lived a life where his mental understanding of God was such that he lived everything else out of that. He woke up drunk in alleys. I mean, his testimony is quite remarkable for how accomplished he was. He lived his life fullest to what he thought made him feel best, and it didn't make him feel good. And so we'll come back to Lee Strobel's story a little bit, but it's interesting. I just want to set the point that as we intellectually understand something, our lives begin to align under that thing. You guys with me? Okay. 
So here's, here's the next thing. Um, and uh, we are going through a passage which is a historical narrative in 1 Kings chapter 8. So you guys can turn, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8 if you would like to. We're going to be going through some quick different verses, and it's, it's a lot of different things that are happening. But I want to set the context a little bit for what's happening. Today, the reason this title, the, the sermon is, is titled The Height of All Wisdom is we turn this corner not just talking about Solomon's wisdom about specific things, about your life, about your marriage, about these things, but we see Solomon as he dedicates the temple, we see Solomon's wisdom about God himself. So if if we're saying that the mental image of God is the most important thing about us, and we look at Solomon as this example for wise living, then his view and wisdom about God is probably the most important part about his wisdom that we can learn. You guys catch me? You with me? So the context of where we're going, chapter 8 of 1 Kings, is they're dedicating this temple. This is the golden age of Israel here. They're in the midst of great prosperity, and, and, and Pastor Steve spoke on this last week, right? They, are, they, they have so much security, they have money, they have power, their economy is amazing, their king is wise, everything is going well. And we know from the grand scheme of, this, of history, because this is actually a story that took place in real life history, this isn't some fable or fiction we know the, the, the end of the story is that not too long, long after the, uh, King Solomon, this, this, uh, Israel is divided. And not too long after that, generations later, Israel is uh, exiled by Babylonian conquest, right? So we see this picture right here of 1 Kings chapter 8 is this glimpse into this golden age of who God is and what he's doing in his people, And so the context of this is that there is a tabernacle, but not a temple. God promises and asks David to build him a permanent house and dwelling. The tabernacle was the place when Moses and Exodus, the people of, after the Exodus, Moses was leading his people through the, through the wilderness. The tabernacle was this temporary place where God's presence dwelt, right? The, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle and it moved along with them as they were exiled and roaming through the wilderness. And so as they're established now in this golden age, in this place where they see a permanent home where they've been fulfilled, God's promise has been faith, he's been faithful to to his promise and they're in the promised land, David says, I'm going to build you a temple, God. And God says, no, you're not. Your son Solomon's going to build it. And so we move not just from this, this temporary dwelling place of God, but we have this permanent dwelling place of the temple that's going to be built. And the temple is amazing. I mean, even from today's standards, the size of it is pretty remarkable. It, I mean, you think about the, the buildings that we have this day and age, and the size of it was not massive compared to some of the, the structures, but the size of it was maybe about two-thirds the size of a f- football field when you take the courts and the, inner, and the inner buildings and all the things of what Solomon's temple was. So this wasn't just a small little room. This was a fairly large building right? It took 150,000 laborers to build the temple, over eight years to complete it. It was made of gold and silver, onyx, marble, some of the most precious stones they had available to them in the world. The amount of gold was 4,000 tons of gold was on this temple, 40,000 tons of silver, the approximate value of what the temple would be worth today with all the things that we see of how much gold and jewels and all this stuff in today's economy would be $160 trillion with a T. Like, like can you, I mean, that, like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I, I honestly don't even know how to comprehend that much money in a building. Like, picture a building about this size and $160 trillion worth of stuff was in that building. This was not some quickly put together plan. This was a 
crafted 150,000 laborers, hand-chiseled the stones. They brought gold in from all over, and they did this all for the sake of the fact that God needed a place permanently to dwell in, their, in, in this land. Remember, the ark and the temple and the tabernacle symbolize God's blessing and covenant with his people. And so this was an attempt not just to be gaudy or flashy, but an attempt to house the most precious thing ever in the world, which is God. There's sin and there's weirdness as Solomon continues his life and and his pride later, but this in and of itself was a good thing and God blesses it. The, The central point of the building of the temple and its dedication is that it's the continued promise and faithfulness of God that started with David. In all the covenants and everything that happened with Abraham and Moses and David, this temple is the pinnacle and the continuation of God's faithfulness and promise. So there's four things. We're going to go through quickly the the four things that Solomon kind of teaches us in this area. There's four aspects of what Solomon's going to teach us in 1 Kings chapter 8, and I want to kind of go through them. We're going to read some scripture fairly quickly. Um, But the first thing is this. Solomon knew that God was a faithful God. Solomon knew that God was a faithful God. In preparing the temple, he says in 1 Kings chapter 8, while the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. And then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who is with his own hand, has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. And then in the temple dedication, he also references the fact that, that this is a continuation of promise. In 1 Kings eight fifty six, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. So this is a recognition, as we've learned these things, this is a recognition from Solomon's wisdom that God actually is faithful. He's walked through a lot of life. He will walk through more life. He'll walk through turmoil, good things and bad things, but he's pausing in this dedication of of the temple to say, God is faithful. The second thing, Solomon knew that God was a holy God. Now, this is an interesting thing to speak about because sometimes we don't fully understand God's holiness, right? We, we just don't. He, his holiness is the set-apartness, the fact that he is the definition of good, and his being good means that everything that doesn't match up to who God is is not good, right? God is fully set apart. His glory and his honor is unmatched about anything else in our universe. And one of the best things that, uh, that helps us understand this, especially in the context of 1 Kings chapter 8, is the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's this dwelling place. And for most of us, if I was Steve Steele right now, I'd pull out my whip and do some sort of Indiana Jones illustration here. Um, But you're just going to have to deal with me for this week. So I don't have my whip with me. Um, But uh, in the midst of this, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's actual dwelling place, right? He was the symbol of God's presence on his people where he actually dwelled in the most holy of holies. And the Ark, just to give you two examples of God's holiness, this one doesn't have to do with the Ark, but it's a positive level of God's holiness. And then we'll look at a negative aspect of God's holiness. The positive level is in Exodus chapter 34. If you guys remember the story, uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's face to face with God. He's in the presence of God which is also what the ark symbolizes later on. But this is a different story where Moses is in the presence of God and he goes up and he comes back down from the mountain and he isn't aware that his face is shining because he was simply in the presence of God. Now, if we want to talk about the holiness of God, does that not give you an image of how holy God is? Just being around him, you physically change because of his glory. 
Now, you want to talk about a mental image of who that God is that we worship and sing songs to? We just don't even understand it. He is so glorious, so big, so massive, that even when Moses walks away from him, he is still shining so much that Israel's like, hey, Moses, you should put a veil on because you're kind of freaking us out. The negative aspect of God's glory, and it doesn't have anything to do with God being negative, but it's negative for the people who interact with this part of his holiness, is found in, in two different accounts uh, of the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. It's this person named Uzzah. And they're reclaiming the ark. If you guys remember the history, the ark kind of goes back and forth. It's captured. It's moving around. And Israel is moving this ark at this point. And I, I don't know all the different aspects of it, but they built this, this cart and this mule or donkey is pulling the ark of the covenant. And the, the, it says the, the mule stumbles and Uzzah reaches out to, to stabilize the ark. Now the ark is the very presence of a holy God whose presence, the definition of his presence means that there is no sin because the presence is good. And so when Uzzah reaches out, even though Uzzah was doing something in, in righteous standing to try to, to stabilize the ark, the anger of the Lord is burned against him and he dies instantaneously. You guys remember this story? Like, I, how awful? I wasn't a kid. I was like, why did he die? He was just helping out. Right? Like, like that's the natural reaction, but that gives us and paints this picture of the holiness of God, does it not? It doesn't matter how good we are as people, no matter how, how inten- well-intentioned we are, the fact of the matter is that God's holiness cannot be around sin unless there is sacrifice and atonement, which is the point of the temple and ultimately the point of Jesus. That's what all of this points to. But in this moment, Those are two aspects of what Solomon knew. And Solomon knew that God was a holy God. 1 Kings chapter 8 finishes that that sentiment from him. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. And the priests and the Levites carried them up. King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel had gathered around him where before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that it could not be recorded or counted. He recognized in even moving it how sacred it was and how much he had to sacrifice and humble himself just to even move the ark of the covenant. The third thing, Solomon knew that God was a forgiving God. He was a gracious and forgiving God. Now, how many of you guys remember a commencement speech that you uh, were around recently? Anyone go to a high school graduation or a college graduation and you remember the commencement speech? I don't either, all right? Like, it's always, it's always like some sort of story, and it's great, and oftentimes it's really well thought through and really times very encouraging, right? There's some amazing commencement speeches. If you just take some time on YouTube, you can binge watch some amazing ones, right? Some hilarious ones, some really encouraging ones, ones that, you know, you can live your life by in such good wisdom. A commencement speech, at least kind of the way they've developed, is that they are, they are to convey an encouraging and successful philosophy of how to live and orient your life by. And so in this way, we would compare what Solomon's doing as he dedicates this temple to a commencement speech. But here's the difference. In today's commencement speeches, the point of the speaker, well, they're hired, first of all, by the, by the institution. So most of the time they come in and say, you guys are so prepared by your institution. They are so good. You guys are so ready to take on life right? They'll say things about how well they're prepared and how encouraged. If you guys just do these things, if you pick yourselves up, if you work hard, you're going to accomplish great things because you've graduated from such and such university, right? And a lot of times they're empty platitudes. They're things that, that people can say, and they might be encouraging, and there might even be real wisdom in it. 
But what's funny to me is that as Solomon is doing something similar here, he does the exact opposite of what a normal commencement day speech is doing. Instead of saying to Israel, rallying Israel behind him like King David does when he's going to battle, Solomon does the exact opposite and over and over and over and over again says to Israel, we need to ask for forgiveness from God. We are not worthy of his holiness. We are not worthy to do this by themselves. In fact, the only reason we have all the blessings that we have is because God is a forgiving and gracious God. I mean, just look back to recent history. We are not very good at being his remnant, being his people. We mess up all the time. And the entirety of what his message is, is we need to be forgiven. God, please forgive us. We need to be forgiven. God, please forgive us. I don't even need to read all of them. Verse 30 in chapter 8 says, Hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, Lord, forgive. We'll skip ahead uh, to verse 36. I'm going to skip one. Verse 36, Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Verse 50, And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. Solomon knew that God was a forgiving God, and he also knew that the only reason the blessing was on Israel is because God was a forgiving God, not because Israel was so worthy of that blessing. Here's the last point, and then we'll move into the so what and kind of have some practical application here. Solomon knew that God loved all nations. Solomon knew that God loved all nations. This is a unique one for me because when I read the story of Israel, I'm sitting there watching this amazing interaction between this specific group of people and God uses them to, to battle different nations and, and do all this stuff. And you kind of forget the fact that as Israel was established in all of the covenant, there's language behind it that the, the reason that God even created Israel, created a remnant, was for the rest of the nations. Right? We forget that because we look at the interaction between Israel and his people and we don't understand the fact that Israel was created to ultimately point all the other nations back to God. And so we read this verse, and it's kind of startling in some ways. Solomon is doing this great pinnacle of the golden age of of Israel, and he's talking about how God is going to bless them. And in verse 41, we read, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when they come and pray towards this temple— then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the, whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And uh, as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. And this one probably captures it even more. Verse 59 of chapter 8. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need. Verse 60. Here's the point. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decree and obey his commands at this time. Solomon knew that the blessing that they were receiving was for the purpose to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. They were blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Solomon knew that. 
briefly, I have to mention this verse. I'm short on time, but Mark 11, the one time that Jesus is like, has a righteous anger, not just the one time, but one of the most animated times we see in scripture. You guys all, all remember the story where Jesus is flipping tables and kind of going crazy. You remember that? I never knew that it actually associated with this. I always kind of took it as like, oh, he's calling people de- the den of robbers and all this merchandise changing hands. And I always took it like, oh, that's why we don't sell t-shirts with our logo on it in the lobby. Right? And, and like, I knew that that wasn't it. I mean, that's probably a fair application where we need to be wise and understand that we're we, if in, in places that are sacred, in places that we are intentional to serve the Lord and love the Lord, that we shouldn't just be flippantly trying to make profit off things, right? But I don't think that's the context of why Jesus was so upset, right? He's walking through the court of the Gentiles, the purpose in the temple where people from distant lands, this is the one place that they get to come offer a sacrifice to God, the people who were not Israel, And Jesus enters the temple in his day and sees people selling things flippantly, trying to make profit, scamming people. And it wasn't uncommon for people to come from distant lands and purchase a dove or something to to offer as a sacrifice. That's not the uncommon thing. The uncommon thing that Jesus sees is that they're doing it with unintentional hearts. That they're doing it, they've, they've skewed what the heart of God was, which was that the nations were to come and offer sacrifice to this God that Israel was supposed to represent, and they no longer represented that God. They represented their own pockets. At the end of verse 11, it says, uh, sorry, in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, verse 17, and he taught them, and he said, this is Jesus after he's done all this stuff, it is not, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? That's the context of him flipping the tables. Solomon, even before all of this, back in this day, he knew and remembered the purpose of the, of the temple. He knew that they were blessed to be a blessing. Solomon knew that God loved all nations and people. Okay, we've reached it. So what? Oh, sorry, am I supposed to say that and you say it back? I don't know how this works. Uh, so we've reached it. Okay, I don't know. You can tell on me. I don't care. I don't really know what's, what we're supposed to do with that. But we're at the so what part, guys. This is important. This is where we're at. This is the whole point. God knew if the pinnacle of Solomon's wisdom, sorry, if the pinnacle of Solomon's wisdom is that he knew that God was faithful, that God was a holy God, that God was a forgiving God, God loved all nations, and that's a pretty clear application. How we see God in his faithfulness, holiness, forgiveness, and love for all people should shape everything that we do in our lives. How we see God in his faithfulness, holiness, forgiveness, and love for all people should shape everything that we do in our lives. And here, here's where I want to backtrack a little bit. I don't think I'm going to disagree with myself, and i don't definitely not going to disagree with A.W. Tozer, but I want to clarify a couple things. At the beginning of my message, I said, I quoted Tozer, and he says, what comes into your mind when, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And at the end of his, his paragraph here, he said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. We talked about this idea that as we create a mental understanding of who God is, our lives start to orient and line up underneath that. Is that right? So the question then is, is knowledge of God only what Tozer was talking about? Because the, the, the frustrating thing and the questioning thing for me is that even the demons knew, right? The amount of times that Jesus tells a story, Luke chapter 4, verse 40, 
At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses and laying, uh, laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and sent them off. The other time where the, 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 he sends the demons into the pigs, they come out and they said, have you come to torture us before the appointed time, son of God? I mean, the demons knew deeply who Jesus was at the moment they saw him. So we have to take this and understand it's not just an intellectual understanding of God that causes any type of transformation. And I think we know this, right? Like, as a kid, we can know that we're supposed to do the right thing and we don't do it. I can attest to that even today. We, we know things that we don't quite align our lives with. I mean, it's, it, just to give you maybe a, a better example, Lee Strobel, the, the person I, I talked about before, Right, the beginning of that example of his life was that as he mentally understood something, his life lined up with that mental understanding, and there was no fruit. There was hurt. There was destruction. But then you read the stories of his life and the accounts of his daughter and the accounts of his wife after he's surrendered his life to Jesus. Oh, man, it's... it's miraculous, right? His wife speaks of how Lee's heart began to change. How the man who was so stubborn and hurtful began to have a softened heart. Began to be soft with his daughter and wife again. Began to love in a new way. And we see that his mental understanding led to conviction, which led to change of action. Right? It's like this. Let me, let me do one last example Let's pretend for a second, I know this is a big leap, let's pretend for a second that I'm an expert on chairs. Now this chair, let's pretend, was, uh, was created in a, uh, a specific factory that designs furniture, so they, they're, they're experts at this, and I could know intellectually that this chair was designed very well. They were experimenting with new types of alloys and steels and that, that, that the capacity of those metals were very strong. And I could also know potentially where this chair was manufactured, maybe somewhere in Texas or something. And we look and we see, and I, I could know, for, for instance, that maybe I, I'm, a, I'm a welder or I know some welders and I know how to, how to look at this and I can see all the welds are not cracked. I can see that this, this was created very firmly and clearly. I could know the brand. I could know every aspect of this chair and I mean, I know for a fact that this chair is going to hold my weight. I mean, I've had a few extra cookies over the last few months. My wife is pregnant, but this still is going to hold my weight. It is going to hold me because I know for a fact that this thing will hold my weight. I mean, it is so clear that this thing is going to hold my weight. I don't need to sit in it because I know that it's going to hold my weight, right? I, I mean, I, I'll do it because I, like, I know that we should, I should show you. I mean, I don't know. It's... I, like, I know, and you, you know that I know that this thing is going to hold my weight, right? I mean, we know it. Like, do, you, do you see how silly that is? Like, how ridiculous would I be if I could not just rest in the fact that this thing actually can hold my weight? Right? Like, I can know all there is to know about a stupid chair, but the moment that I actually sit in it, it's when I actually put my faith in it, that it will actually hold me. It doesn't matter how much I've studied, gotten a master's in chair 
putting togetherness, and doesn't matter how many Ikea furnitures I've put together, the fact of the matter is, until I sit in that thing, that's when I know that this chair is going to hold me. And it's the same thing with God, right? You guys have grown up, and I don't know all of you. I don't know how many of you are here for the first time. I don't know how many of you have grown up in the church. My assumption is that a church like this, which has a legacy like ours, that many of you have grown up in the church. Many of you have been in the church for years and years and years. And so you hear things like God's faithfulness, holiness, forgiveness, and love for all people. And you're like, yeah, of course. I've heard those words my entire life. Of course God is loving. Of course he is faithful. Of course he loves all people. And of course he's all those things. And you kind of walk out the doors and it's just this in one ear, out the other. But maybe some of us still struggle daily with what it looks like to sit in the fact that God is faithful. Where I'm going through a hard time and it's hard to actually trust the fact that he actually is faithful this time. It's hard for me to sit down in the the trust and the love of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. And so my so what for you, my plead for us as a church, when you go to community groups, when we walk out the store, is that we would actually wrestle in a real way with what it looks like to trust the faithfulness, the holiness, the goodness, and the promises of God, his love for people. That we would walk out these doors and really wrestle with what it looks like to sit in God. I'm going to end with this last verse, and this is the response of God to Solomon in a paralleled uh, account in Second Chronicles chapter 7. God's response to Solomon's dedication of the temple is this. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. My prayer is that we would learn how to do that. As we mentally understand, let's mentally push ourselves to understand a loftier view of God so that as we align under that mental understanding, that we would trust and sit in that understanding in a deeper way. Let's pray. God, I I pray for this group. I pray for this church. I pray for us as First Baptists that you would overwhelm us overwhelm us with your love. These, these words that we le- learn from Solomon are not new. We know, God, that you are a faithful God. We know it. We know that you are a holy God. We know that you forgive and we know that you love all people. But Lord, in this dynamic, we ask and we pray that you would teach us what it looks like to continually live that out, to humble ourselves over and over again to live in such a way where you are number one and you actually make sense in our lives. Be with us, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.